Welcome and thank you for joining us in this latest instalment of the Ace Records podcast, hosted by myself, Pete Pavides. Today we're here to celebrate the music and legacy of a band that helped define their era with a string of records whose fearless, affirmative sound and spirit burns as brightly today as it did over five decades ago when their final album in their original incarnation was released. Their individual stories began in middle America, but their paths converged in Hollywood in the mid-60s, where it became apparent that the demonic, thrilling noise they made together exceeded its constituent parts. Formed around the quixotic talents of their frontman Sky Saxon, the Seed's self-titled debut album is that rarest of things, a flawless opening salvo of songs that set out its creators and compromising terms of engagement. It spawned one of the great debut singles of all time, Can't Seem to Make You Mine, and the group's only top 40 hit, the equally brilliant Pushing Too Hard. It was a purple patch they continued with a web of sound and the psychedelic masterpiece Future, and also Raw and Alive, the 1968 live album, which 10 years later, John Savage described as downright insultingly simple garage rock and roll that in its unselfconsciousness and rightness wipes the floor with a disturbingly high proportion of those groups all around these days who are trying so hard to be rock and roll. With every passing year, their legend grows a little bit brighter, and part of that is thanks to longtime fans, friends, and colleagues such as Alec Palau, as well as occasionally playing bass for the current lineup. Alec has lovingly overseen a thorough program of expanded seeds reissues, and he's produced a feature length documentary telling the story of the seeds entitled Pushing Too Hard. I'm delighted to say that he's here with me, but so is legendary founding member and keyboard player with the Seeds, Daryl Hooper, and also the band's current drummer, Don Boomer. Gentlemen, how lovely to meet you. Thank you. Glad to be here. I'm glad you're still awake after that intro. (laughs) (laughs) Especially Um, after jet lag. (laughs) Yeah, no, how are you doing? Are you better here? I'm doing pretty good, really. Yeah? Yeah. It's really lovely to meet you. I mean, it is one of those incredible things where you know you put these records on and they they have a kind of contemporary sort of feel they if if they were made yesterday you'd be pretty thrilled about it as a music fan well thank you that's nice to hear you know you never knew back in the day it was going to live this long (laughs) there's a sort of uh there's a kind of untutored gusto about well not in your case there was nothing untutored about uh, untutored about you because there was a, the, a lot of the virtuosity in the band came from the way, way that you played. But was there a pressure to sort of dial it down a bit, to sort of serve the primal excitement of what you were doing? No, you know what, we just did what we did. Mm. You know, we weren't, we didn't have a lot of, uh, like, we just did a, an, another interview here with the BBC and uh, uh, asked the question, did you plan things out or did you try to copy something from the Rolling Stones or the so-and-so whatever groups and we really did not you know what happened was just coming from our heart and our guts and it was what came out in that era I mean I get the impression you weren't actually listening too closely to too many other too many of your contemporaries not as far as we were definitely listening but we weren't trying to do that in our own music yeah yeah because a lot of the things that you did were actually you were first to do. Um, True. And um, I think maybe because certainly over here, you didn't have so much of a commercial profile. People are not so aware of that. You, you, you in particular, you came over from, 
you, unlike Sky, you had a fairly sort of conventional sort of background, didn't you? Before? I did. I was a classically trained musician as a child. And, yeah. and was it what made you want to sort of leave all that? What made you want to leave Detroit behind? Well, I, the drummer and I were great friends from junior high school, and we just always had the dream of coming to California, and that's what we did right out of high school. And, and left and we really didn't come out to form a group and become rock and rollers but yeah. it just sort of happened we got a call one day from Sky Saxon and he needed a guitar player I mean excuse me a keyboard player yeah. and I uh, Rick the drummer uh, I said he needs to come along with me oh great and we played one job together just doing cover songs of who knew what that night and it just clicked and uh, from that point on, we just uh, a little later on started writing our own material, and it grew from there. So, how old were you when you actually sort of left your parents' home? Eighteen. So you know, like my, I've got an eighteen-year-old daughter, and if she packed up the car, yeah, like you guys did, yeah. and said, yeah, I'm off to drove three thousand miles across the country. <laughs> You'd probably be upset. My mom had tears in her eyes, but I had great, great, great parents, and they were supportive of whatever I wanted to do. So you loaded. What was the car? The car was a '57 Chevy. Is that right? Yeah, that was Rick's car. I had a '57 Ford convertible, and mine had a little mechanical problem. So we were both saving money and decided, well, we'll let's take your car and we'll pool our money and let's go. And uh, okay. we just went out and got just just jobs in a. Uh, department store or something as stock boys right at first just to make enough money to pay the rent for an apartment and whatever and then like I say Sky happened to call and things fell into place and we became musicians we had played together in little bands back in in Michigan together yeah so you know we were musicians but we didn't necessarily have the goal right at the start mm -hmm. to become big rock and rollers but it all sort of fell into place. And but there was, never, was there never a sort of a minute or a day or an hour, an hour where you sort of regretted, you know, leaving, going so far away? Never. Really? No, I've only been back once, and that was forty years ago. So no, really, never, just, that, just never, once, really. Yeah, never really regretted ever. What made you go back after all that time? What well, made you go back once? Uh, my mom and dad still lived there at the time. Right. Okay. They both yeah. passed away now, but and they did finally move to California too, eventually. But it took many years. Amazing. And your original plan was to go to piano tuning school. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And like, not very uh, thinking through teenagers. <laughs> Never bothered to check it out, and finally get get to California in the school and find out it's booked up for a year and you can't get in. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't even know there was such a, such a thing as piano tuning. Oh school. yeah, yeah. Okay. Fantastic. And you would have been, uh, obviously not figuring the story yet, Don, but you would have been a contemporary or where, where, where do we find you in the timeline? Yeah, so actually I was a bit younger, but, you but yeah, I was, in, I was in other groups in Hollywood at the time. And uh, of course, you know, the seeds were on the radio. You know, we, we, we all listened to the seeds. You remember hearing the seeds on the radio? Oh, absolutely. You bet. Okay, I mean that's those. I don't often get sort of envious of people who are, you know, in their teens or whatever at that time. But one thing I do get slightly envious about is because having that contemporaneous feel for, for for records that would have come out at that time and sort of seeing what it would have sounded like in the context 
of any everything else happening. So what did those early uh, first records sound like to you as a fan? Well, California kind of had its own sound compared to the East Coast, mm. where where rock had more of a swing feel to mm. it, as much as it did maybe maybe here in Britain. Yeah. Uh, where on the West Coast, I think the music, at least in Southern California, was had had rock and roll started with, with kind of like surf music. Yeah. Which uh, which Jan had been in a surf band, I had been in a surf band, and surf bands that music. To be different than yeah. East Coast music was very straight and very strictly on the beats. Yeah. There was no swing to it at all. It's it's very it's yeah. very um, mathematical and mechanical. Yeah. Yeah. It's just a different sound. Absolutely, you know. But uh, but like in the, like Daryl said, in those days, I mean, everybody wanted to be different than somebody else. We listened to everybody, hmm. but if you played something that sounded like somebody else, you changed it. You didn't play what somebody else was playing. Right. You, okay. you you wanted to be as far away from that as possible. Everybody wanted to, to have their own unique sound. But inevitably, you take elements of things. And well, you take elements of everything you've ever heard, and and you personalize that. And each person, what what you like to listen to, is because you've listened to hundreds or thousands of things, and you've yeah. extracted little parts, and you kind of construct that into a path that goes. And I think that's what happens. That's what happens with the well, band, John, the you personalities. Mentioned, you mentioned John, the guitarist in the band. Um, Having, having been kind of raised on surf guitar, so mm -hmm. and so that was um, that was definitely sort of in the makeup of the um, of the, the sort of early sort of sound of the group, wasn't it? Yes, it was. Yeah, yeah. Your first conversation with Scar, it was on the phone, wasn't it? Right. Yeah, yeah. He just uh, needed a keyboard player and got my name somehow. I'm not even sure how, and uh, said, uh, "Can you play a gig? And would you like to?" And and uh, we were very hungry for money at that moment and, and wondering where our next uh, meal was coming from, literally, as, uh, like I said, I think I was 19, and eight, 18, I think. We had to eventually, in fact, a little funny story, uh, early on the, when we were playing together and we were playing these different bars and things and you had to be 21 to play, yeah. I had to end up getting a fake ID to be 21, not to drink, but just to get in there and play music. <laughs> So, uh, yeah, it's kind of interesting. So you, what were you actually living on? Didn't you get one job where you were paid in spaghetti or something? That was one of the, yeah, one of the early times on. Yeah, <laughs> we were happy to get it. It'd be all the beer and spaghetti we could eat and uh, $7 a night we got, wow. plus, plus the food. And the food was what was important. <laughs> Absolutely, okay. What were your first impressions of Sky then as a sort of, um, as someone to be in a band with? <clears throat> Uh, well, we hit it off really well in the in the early days. Uh, Sky wasn't uh, quite as far out there as he got to be later on, but uh, he was. Uh, and and when we first got together, we were doing cover tunes like most bands do, uh, you know. But it wasn't too much. Maybe six months into being together, that we started writing uh, t together and things and and coming up with songs and. Uh, did every band have to know those covers to to survive in a barroom environment? Yes. Absolutely. Really? Yeah. Oh, yeah. So what would be, can you give me an example of a song that you could just kind of whip out and that would just keep, keep the peace? Oh, I, I the only, well, if I could just interject there, the only surviving recording there is of the Seeds doing a cover, which is a, a live recording from, um, you know, the Century 
club, the Brickhead, is Land of a Thousand Dances. Right. But it's a very strange, slow, uh, you know, it doesn't sound like the Midnighters or whatever, or Cannibal and the Headhunters or whichever, <coughs> whichever one was, you know, sort of in the air at that moment. It's very slow and, and just uh, sky kind of just deadpan intoning, you know. No, 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 you know, so, but that's the only one I've ever known yeah, about. I remember doing What I Say, uh, Ray Charles. I mean, everyone version. had to do that, didn't yeah, they? Yeah, right, you know, uh, Twist and Shout. Uh, what was your version of What Did I Say? Like, I'd love to hear the Seeds, do, uh, seeds version of What I Say. <laughs> and you did a, a more, uh, I do know that Daryl sang a song. Uh, in fact, in the, sound, the, the latest ACD soundtrack, uh, there's a photo of him singing it. Uh, um, a song called Mickey Mouse, which was originally done by uh, Denny Provisor, who was right. sort of like a um, sort of a, one of those guys who got into like folk rock or whatever. But yeah. that was Daryl's like star turn, right? Yeah, oh, right. evil secrets here. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, right. But you would all take a turn to sing, wouldn't you? Yeah, yeah, yeah we would in the early days. Yeah. So can't seem to make your mind. Was clearly uh, that was the first song that inspired you to kind of go and get an acetate made. Is that right? Yeah, I believe so. Yeah. Where was it? <laughs> well, my understanding of it is uh, that um, uh, that you know the, the, you know the band was cooking enough that by April 1965, you know they uh, pulled enough money, and there was a fellow called Jimmy Madden who was sort of like a Hollywood guy around town, actually an old school guy, but he's like, oh, this new rock and roll. A lot of a, a lot of the Hollywood hustlers were a little confused by the British influence, and you know, and so you know, you know, someone like Sky Saxon had been around for six years trying to make it as a Bobby or a Frankie, and you know, hadn't gone anywhere because he couldn't really sing in that style, and he wasn't didn't look like a movie star yeah. you know all of a sudden the ugly guys from england are popular so he's got a you know he's got an outlet and you know and he had certainly had a lot of um you know experience and everything um and so he but he was connected to a lot of these the lower level hustlers in hollywood yeah. so this yeah. guy jimmy madden who ran teenage nightclubs got together with him uh and they uh took you know that's the band went in the studio western yeah uh recorded that and then that became the demo that would be shopped around. In fact, on the tape box, it says Richie Mar Richard Marsh. It doesn't even say seeds. So. Wow. Okay. And so, um, but even then, the, the, you didn't get a deal straight away, did you? No. No, we, we pooled our own money to go in and, mm. and, and make an acetate. But uh, Sky pounded the pavement and yeah. come up with the Crescendo Records. And uh, they paid for us to go into the studio and... Just kind of re-record it and do it properly and whatever and uh, and a lot of the reason there. sorry sorry go on, go a lot of the reason why that song works is sort of what what you bring to it really those kind of hints of baroque kind of oh thank you flourish um, is it was it just sort of a matter of all of you just sticking to what you did best and not really sort of analysing it too much or what. Those questions are always hard for me to answer. I mean, so many of the things, it, it, they just sort of evolved and you did what you did. They, they weren't thought through and say, well, if we do this and we do that, this could happen. Yeah. It didn't work that way. Absolutely. Yeah, it tends not to, does it? With bands, no. You know. Yeah, I mean, if I could just interject again, an interesting thing I've observed from what Daryl and the other guys have told me and that I hear from, you know, some tastes is that a lot of stuff was kind of partly evolved on the bandstand. Uh, you know, because these guys were working a lot in those days, you know, different clubs around thing. And so, um, you know, you hear on the studio, the, the studio chatter on all the tapes, it's like, oh, well, this, this isn't how we played it last night at the club or whatever, blah, blah. <laughs> I mean, like Evil Hoodoo is a classic example of that. Yeah. You know, and I think, you know, to some extent, 
while you know Daryl was the, the 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 technician. He was a conduit for for Sky. Sky might have a lyric or an idea, but it was Daryl who put it together. I mean, yeah. the sound of the band is really down to Daryl. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, and I think, a, but a lot of that kind of just evolved organically, like Daryl says. I don't think it was a plan. As far as I haven't been able to observe, yeah. you know, a sort of you know write a song and record it type situation. Yeah, you know? yeah evolved is a better word than, right. than than calculated. Right. You know. I think every band needs a virtuoso, don't they? And you need a sort of it's every band also needs someone who can talk a great record but you also need someone who can kind of somehow like a Daryl in a way who yeah. can sort of yeah you can make well, he's, he's a translator for Sky's Brainstorms you know yeah I mean, yeah, the, 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 <laughs> yeah the, so yeah but but I, I think that's what makes them special because they were very it's very organic uh, kind yeah. of rock and roll there's no there's no Svengali guiding it you know there's no no one in the booth saying do this, do that. You know, there's no session guys coming in outside of uh, Harvey Sharp, the bass player they used because Daryl they didn't have a bass on stage. You know, right. they uh, Daryl just hit the low notes hard, and then you got the keyboard bass later. Yeah, yeah, and that was something you were doing before Ray in the Doors. Yes, yeah, which is a great idea, isn't it? Also, a very economical idea because yes, you have to play a, pay a bassist. Right. <laughs> You should have ended up getting twice as much. <laughs> I should have. <laughs> <laughs> how long did that, so that sort of seminal debut album, how, how long did that actually take to get it down? Uh, in those days, I mean, you, you really, we were performing these songs in clubs and things. And so when we were ready to record them, when we went in, it was like three takes or something usually. Yeah. Be, you know, it might be an average. It, it, was, it didn't. It actually, didn't. I mean, again, sorry, I don't want to keep interrupting no, no, you with this. Yeah, it's, it's all good. They, the, <clears throat> the, the, that first album is actually done. You know, comprised of sessions that go as almost as far back as the first record. You know, the, the because um, "Can't Seem to Make Your Mind" was done in April, was released in June, and they went back in the studio that same month uh, and started doing stuff. You know, and various other sessions through the year into the beginning of the next year. So it was actually, you know. But, uh, that album actually took a year to to do. Uh, what was great is that you know GMP Crescendo, being a, the kind of label that you know their bread and butter was uh, was as much albums as singles. There's no problem for Gene Norman to to say you know go back in the studio and cut more stuff. You know you, you know we'll, we'll we'll do an album. Yeah. Uh, and the fact that it's uh, one of the very first uh, rock and roll records, um, certainly from the United States, and, and I, was, I would <clears throat> wager in Hollywood, of all self-composed material. There's no covers on there at all, which is, you know, as we were just talking about, very unusual. It is incredible. I mean, you have to sort of go, you know, even with the Beatles, you'd get the odd song on an album as early on as mm -hmm. up until that point that might be a cover. Yeah, there was a point in our career early on where we, when we, like I said, we were talking about doing cover songs where we, one night we had enough material, we said, okay, this is the last night we're doing any cover at all. No more requests, no nothing. It's our material. Yeah. And that's what we wanted to present on our first album, which we did. And it sounds incredible even now. I mean, and, and like uh, like Alex said, a lot of that is sort of down to the way you play. Um, it's a hard life, I think, is a case in point. You get such a great sound on that road. How do you even get your keyboard to sound like that? Well, that was the Wurlitzer, the old Wurlitzers of the day. Yeah. Yeah. Electronic piano. Do you and still use one now? I do. 
Uh, a lot of shows, uh, I'm not able to uh, get them there, so we have it kind of, uh, uh, you know, in an electronic box, but we, we, we're 99 and 9 tenths have that sound, and then the, yeah. you wouldn't know the difference. But uh, like here, we're performing with a, a rented uh, Wurlitzer. Oh, okay. Right. A real one. A real one. <laughs> Makes a difference. It really does, doesn't it? Yeah, it, it does. Yeah. It does. Because a lot of keyboard players do tend to sort of update. One thing that struck me that was very sweet, because, you know, someone, you know, in my naivety, <clears throat> I think back to that period and I think that the, <clears throat> the gap between your generation and your parents <clears throat> must have been almost unbridgeable, but it doesn't always <clears throat> seem to be the case. And I saw read this detail about uh, Jan's mother making you T-shirts. Uh, yeah, right at first, yeah. And then late, later on, my mother was a seamstress and I would design my own clothing and she would make it. Even though she lived 3,000 miles away, she'd do a mock-up, send it out, try it on, change it, send it back, and then I'd get the finished product in the mail made out of velvet or something. I mean, that's incredible. You know, you hear these stories, it's not always the case. I mean, you know, everyone, everyone knows about it's probably read at some point about Jim Morrison and his kind of military father who had the, who's kind mm -hmm. of authoritarian stance against him almost made Jim rebel even more. But it's lovely mm -hmm. to hear this this these instances that go against type where you had you know, they must have on one level they must have been kind of scared of what you you know you know turning up to visit you uh, and seeing your hair twice as long as right yeah mm -hmm. in a way it, they were um, like I said I did I was truly blessed with wonderful parents and my father was a musician early on in life in the 1930s and played in a little radio band called the Melody Makers and did swing of the era and so he was always supportive of whatever kind of music and uh, but I'm sure there was a lot of stuff that we did that they didn't understand you know yeah. I first got married and had hair down to here the wedding pictures, or my hair is longer than the wife's, you know, so it's like, <laughs> that was a little strange. I think that was even stranger for my in-laws. <laughs> yeah, and well, how were they with it? Uh, they, again, they accepted it. There was probably a few comments, that, <laughs> but they, they did it. It wasn't a lot of problem. I, I was luck blessed with re people that were receptive. They may not totally have understood it all, but they went, well, Absolutely. okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, Let's talk a little bit about the, mm -hmm. the, the well, no, before we do, let's, uh, let's talk about being, being pop stars, which you would have briefly have been without a doubt in mm -hmm. uh, go, going well into 1966. Right. There was, uh, by that oh. time, there was quite a bit of hysteria surrounding the group, wasn't there? Serious what? Hysteria. Oh yeah, once the group got uh, big, there was um, many shows where I, I can remember one in particular, and there was more than one that, you know, the fans were ripping off pieces of clothing and everything else and well, was that behavior yeah. that was just ha would ha would have happened anyway in the states or was some of it learned from what had happened with Beatlemania that's a good question I don't know if I could answer that one yeah yeah and um, yeah. I think well I, I mean you have to remember that sort of especially from teenage girls or pre-teenage girls hysteria that goes back to the Bobby Soxer days and yeah. you know Sinatra and Johnny yeah. Ray and everything so but I think it, you know the Beatles sort of raised it up a notch where like you know mm. it's you know every show you go to where a band was popular with that that age group you know it'd just be screams and and everything like that and I think the um the seeds you know especially when and after Pushing Too Hard became a top Forty here, but more importantly in Los Angeles area where they were absolutely yeah, the, yeah. the the kings of the of the of the county. You know, they uh, every show for over a six month period was 
was nothing but screams and, and girls mobbing them and stuff, yeah. And how did, what kind of, individually, sort of within the band, how did that affect you all? Well, it made you, it definitely made you feel like a star, I'll yeah. say that, yeah. I guess I'm kind but, of... Uh, and some of it, at the exact moment that's happening, not, not necessarily the playing in the audience, that was cool, except it made it hard to hear, because the technology of playing on stage, I know that's what... The, Beatles finally quit playing, well, that was a problem. PA systems, whatever, hearing what the vocalist is doing or the guitar player is doing, it's an extreme problem. So that was one of that, you know, you sometimes might wish if the crowd wasn't yelling so much, you could hear a little bit more. Yeah. But that's a technical thing. And then, uh, but the behinds, like, I can remember a couple instances where the security wasn't that great and girls got back and got at you and literally I had a sleeve ripped off me and things like that and they wanted to take a piece of you home. That's a little scary at the moment. Yeah. Later you can look back at it and be, oh that was cool or whatever, but I lived through it, I didn't get a broken arm, they didn't get my arm, they only got my shirt. <laughs> and, that, and the movie, uh, the Seeds documentary, Jan tells a great story about like how you know, they played in Honolulu, uh, where it was like absolute pandemonium, and you know some poor old policeman was like he ended up in the hospital, you know, being trampled by the teenage girls. But as Jan says, we made the papers. You know? <laughs> <laughs> well, I can remember too, them getting up on stage and stuff, knocking out cables and things, and yeah. you, you know, we'd lose the guitar, or we'd lose yeah. the we'd lose the vocal mic or something until somebody figured it out because people were tripping over stuff because you know in those days nobody nobody dressed it like they do now we you know yeah of course yeah so. yeah and what about how what kind of effect did all of that have on on sky uh well if i can visualize it his ego went i think it definitely <laughs> went to sky's head a little bit more than any of the rest of us we were still able able to i think maintain what was really going on yeah and how would that manifest itself then? You say, you know, it went a little bit more to his head. What, what, what were the early signs, if there were any? Well, I, I don't want to speak on these guys' behalf, but Please. I could just offer... <laughs> I, it, it, when they became successful, right at that moment in time, yeah. they, uh, they got a, um, uh, a manager, a, a transplanted Brit, yeah. Lord Tim Hudson, yeah, yeah. who was a uh, DJ um, on the, was it KSJ? Was it or um, KWB? I don't know. One of the big AM stations, and and he, you know, you know, Sky. Just a little bit of background. He's a Mormon, Cameron from you know Salt Lake City. You know, one point, you know, he'd gone down that path, which you know, and was going to be sort of a higher up in the church, a deacon or what they call that. But he. He left that, uh, came to Hollywood to kind of you know become a star. It took him a while, but all of a sudden he did become a star. So he, he had a little bit of like that intensity. Um, you know, drugs obviously came into play too. And then you know his ego just was swelled first by the the growing response to the seeds because the seeds was super hip in like mid '66, uh, neck and neck with Love and the Doors yeah. uh, as the you know the underground band of L.A. Yeah. And then along comes Lord Tim and starts you know really whispering in his ear about oh blah blah you're a superstar and da 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 da. Uh, and, and his ego kind of went in overdrive and he started thinking that anything because all the things he'd he'd done I can't see to make your mind pushing too hard. It worked. Yeah. That whatever he's going to deliver next is yeah. going to is going to work too, and everyone's going to love it. But of course, by that time, you know it was you know Lord Tim had come up with this flower power hype, 
which really became a millstone. Yeah. And so Sky thought, well, we'll put you know this, that, and the other on on you know in our records and blah yeah. blah, which you know retrospectively makes it interesting for the likes of you and I. But yeah, yeah. but for you know all the hipsters that were listening to the Springfield or, or the Airplane or the Dead or whatever, yeah. all the San Francisco thing, and then here's a bunch of guys with screamers. And a guy going on about whips and crows and stuff like that on his records, you know, uh, you know, it, it, it got to. So I think my point is, is that you know, it was a, it just was cumulative yeah. uh, with Sky. And the, the sad thing is, is that it, it uh, and again, I, I don't want to speak for Daryl, but I think he put a wedge between him and the other guys in the band because at the beginning they were a unit doing yeah. this together, and then all of a sudden it became, you know, Sky. Well, there's a long tradition yeah. of either managers or label guys kind of coming yeah. in and sort of taking the singer to one side. And creating that it's divide and rule, isn't it? Yeah. And um, I mean, how did Tim even end up becoming your manager? Sorry, Lord Tim. Lord Tim. Yeah. He uh, he came. Uh, he was a disc jockey on the radio and quite popular in Los Angeles. And um, he came to some show and approached us as wanting to be a manager. And we had gone through. I think we had some not very knowing type manager at the time mm. and not a solid contract type situation but mm. anyway uh, Tim said well I can do this and I can do that so we decided to give it a go and and he did it, Tim to me is a double-edged sword some people didn't like him say that was a bad move and the other side says oh that was good and I, I'm kind of right in the middle he you know he, he did know a lot and he had some connections and he did get us going it gave us an, an extra kick up the ladder Type, well, so. let's, before we get sort of more deep into sort of maybe his kind of effect on you sort of artistically, I wanted to sort of dwell on uh, A Web of Sand, the second album, which um, which has got some extraordinary work from yourself on it in particular. Thank you. And just this, um, the sheer outrageous sort of outrageousness, I guess, of just having a song that's 14 and a half minutes long in 1966. No one had kind of come close to doing that, had they? No, the Stones had one that was 11 minutes or something. Going home. Going yeah, home. After yeah. yeah. But uh, that, I, I think that evolved from the shows. Yeah. Because we would do it uh, usually at the end of the show and stuff, and it got longer and longer, and people got more into it and whatever else, and we decided to just do it on an actual recording. And the record company went along with it and said, well, okay. Is that another one of the benefits of being on a label that kind of maybe was more used to putting out jazz records? Possibly. Yeah, that's an interesting thing. I mean, had, 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 it been had the band not been on Crescendo, yeah. I think different things would have happened. Yeah. You know, so that, that, was, a, yeah. that was a kind of a unique thing because actually we, we were their only rock act, right? Yeah. Did they have? Yeah, they, they had surf. Have, bands, sort of. They had well but, a couple surf acts. Yeah. They, but, well, they they had surf crews there, then they had sort of pop surf like the Challengers, but you know they really. But nothing else. Well, like mostly if there yeah. was any other rock groups like the other half, for example, the Fire Escape, it tended to be mostly on forty fives or you know uh, singles. You know the the Seeds were the only album rock rock album act. Yeah. You know, on so the, so you're right. Maybe they didn't quite. <laughs> maybe they didn't know to say no. Yeah, you know, yeah, because yeah, I mean, yeah, it, course, it yeah. was a learning process for everybody. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. What are your favorite songs on there? We've got to talk about Mr. Farmer, surely. I mean, that's. <laughs> well, Daryl wrote that song, of course. Although he's not credited for writing the song. 
as, as most of the songs, Daryl really wrote the music for everything. Because I've been in her room is one of yours. Yeah, but uh, no, I, I wrote most of the music for all the songs, and Farmer in particular. I woke up at 3 o'clock in the morning one day, and I had the entire song in my head, and I went to the keyboard, and I recorded it on a little reel reel, and went to Sky the next day, and he wrote the lyrics for the song. So, wow. yeah, and I'm, I'm very proud of that song. I think it's a, it, it's a catchy little melody that kind of sticks with you. It is, and it's kind of, it's, it's what, what was, I'm trying to think, the film that it was used on. What's that one, uh, something about... Uh, oh, Almost... Almost Famous. Almost Famous. Almost Famous, famous. Almost famous. Yeah, yeah. it was in that. Yeah. I think it's been used in something else, too. But yeah, that, must anyway. have, that must have been a good year for you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It is an incredible song. I mean, the... Um, and, um, and also, there's so much... It covers so much ground, this record, you know, mm -hmm. if you sort of like, in terms of the kind of mark of progress from the first album, mm -hmm. it's still... At its heart, you know, it retains all the all the things that you were so that people loved about the first album. But if you think about a song also like a faded picture, which um, you know reveal reveals something. You know, I almost wonder if you learn more about Sky through the lyrics of that song than you might have done prior to anything anything else about him at that point. It's a, it's a fascinating song, isn't it? It is. It was even more fascinating to watch him perform it, or especially in the recording studio. Really? He had so much emotion that he would pour out into it. Yeah. It, uh, there was times that uh, certain songs, maybe that one in particular, that you know, you'd get a tear in your eye. You, you, he had a lot of emotion that he could pour out into that microphone. And yeah. Was he... The, sorry. Okay. Well, I was just going to say that, I mean, uh, <coughs> one thing I've observed, listening, I've listened to, you know, as much sees music as these guys did because I went through every scrap of every single session tape. Uh, it's a, a marvel of just like he really was a, I mean, for all his faults or whatever, he, he, he put it out there. I mean, that's him. It's not, he's not trying to be somebody else or whatever, blah, blah, blah. You know, um, you know, he might, uh, he might, you know, later years he got a little derivative in terms of like he was just losing ideas. So he like might ape Morrison a little bit or something like that. But 965, 966 is totally on top of his game and, and willing to try anything. And at that time, that moment in rock, the rock firmament, or however you want to describe it, it was completely cutting edge, mm. you know. Uh, and I mean, I think of Web of Sound, it, it's probably my favorite album just because it's so, I mean, I love the, you know, right from the cover, it's like a pop arty kind of sort of a feel to it. It's not a, it's not, it's not like the first album, which is just like ram a lamma all the way through, and then it's not like Future, which is more diffuse. It's just, it's got all the good, the experimentalism of the later album, but the, the sort of energy of the first album. Feels to me, in a way, it's like a little bit like a companion piece to the second album by them, uh, obviously, which came out over here, which um, again just sees that slight kind of sonic migration from a really raw proto punk energy to, you know, moments of. Confession, confessional moments, reflective moments, and um, you know, I, I, I sort of almost kind of feel like they're kind of companion pieces in my head. Had you heard Van Morrison and them at that point? Did were you aware of what them, they were doing? I, I knew the group uh, again. Uh, sure, I listened to these different musics, uh, but I didn't say, well, I'm going to try to emulate this. Or no, that, I thought you know, might have been slightly or, before, if anything. But, uh, but it, it's just kind of interesting. Well, I think it, you know, it was hard to avoid having a little bit of Gloria in any kind of rock band from 1966, you know? Yeah, it's yeah. Like, yeah. yeah but yeah, but yeah, absolutely. But I mean, sort of to think about, like, even their version of It's All Over Now, Baby Blue, I sort of... Right, right, think, sure. You know, sort of edging it sort of in that direction. So, um, 
So I'm hearing, I'm, I, I don't know for sure really, but going into the sort of full blown, well not full, but the kind of definitely the sort of more lysergic direction of future, um, I'm kind of sensing maybe this was kind of Lord Tim having more of a sort of explicit effect on the direction of the band, is that right? Or do correct me if I'm uh, well, I think it's, it's, it's more skies evolving and Maybe, you know, he probably was influenced, he, Sky probably was influenced with Sgt. Pepper. Not that that music's anything like it, but what it is is like trying to use other instruments and things into the situation. You know, the, the flute, the tuba, the harp player, yeah. the, all of the different things that were put into the music. So I think Sky was probably influenced with that, and then he presented it to us. And, and uh, we had the basic songs, and we would do that and as we performed. And uh, then in the recording studio, it kind of changed, and that wasn't the rest of the band's idea. That was Sky, mainly. Yeah, I might add that uh, Future was fully recorded and finished before Sgt. Pepper came out. So, you know, it's... Uh, oh, it was well, more, well, no, no, that, it, that okay. doesn't mean that, uh, that, 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 you know, what the Beatles or, or what, the way pop music was going wasn't an influence. It's obvious. I think it's because you, was, you started recording Future right at the, you know, when you had your highest success. You know, when you, you had, you know, Mr. Farmer, Can't Seem to Make Your Mind was like, you know, huge, reissued and huge in LA. So you go in the studio like, wow, you know, mm. you know was, what are they going to do now? And that's when Sky kind of says, well, I want to do this and I want to do that. And he's got Lord Tim whispering in his ear, you know, you, yeah. you can do that. Uh, um, because if you, on the reissue that I put together uh, for Big Beat, the double CD on the second disc, I, what, what I thought was really interesting was present some of the songs without all the, the um, augmentation, you know, yeah, with, yeah. Uh, so you could really just hear the seeds playing those songs as opposed mm. to like, you know, the harps and the flutes, and which I think, you know, it's all wonderful uh, accompaniment, but I still want to hear what it is that attracts me to yeah. seeds music in the first place. When you heard about, I guess you must have not heard a lot of these raw versions for a long time. Oh yeah. Were you surprised that <laughs> yeah. there was this, even here there was this a version of the seeds that perhaps you might have you forgotten. Know. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Really? Yeah. Okay. Oh yeah. That's yeah. interesting. And uh, again, some of the, uh, I mean, I don't know. Did you, Sky, would he, I'm guessing because you've got, you know, guys in their 20s don't really have these kinds of conversations with each other. But were there conversations where Sky would sort of tell you what inspired certain songs? Uh, slightly, well, more if you asked him, like if I asked you, I'd, I'd work with him, you know, mostly, and, and the lyrics, uh, he would, a lot of them were more inspired, I think, by relationships with uh, girls, um, you know, Pushing Too Hard, you know, everybody thinks was written as a protest song or something, it, it was written because of a girlfriend yeah. that dumped him or or he was dumping her it was like you're pushing too hard on me and i don't want you to do that and blah 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 yeah. uh, and then it evolved into it, it and it's one of those kind of songs that particular one that can reflect to a lot of different incidents not just the girl it can be a protest song against the war or something else you know your your job uh yeah, and i think that's, that's so kind of the mark of a great song often is that it can be written about one thing. One thing and it can apply yeah, to yeah. other instances and I think that's the case with a lot of that. But I think he, he wrote off of 
things that were either happening to him or he was observing. You know, he was always doing that, and he was always writing down yeah. lyrics. I, and that, I mean, I would absolutely agree with that. My observation <clears throat> that the way that the sort of his writing developed, because you notice, starting with Mr. Farmer, he's you know he's getting sensitive to like you know the, what's happening. You know, culture, social, culturally, you know, mm. I mean, the farm everyone thinks is about, you know, growing marijuana or whatever, blah, blah, but it's actually about getting back to the land sort yeah. of thing. And then, you know, he's, but he's then, he, he's expanding that into, you know, and, and Tim's pushing towards, you know, flowers, you know, blah, 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 go that way, da, da, da. And so, but, you know, I mean, some of these, his concepts are totally bizarre. I mean, flower lady and her assistant, or I you know, that you, song. I mean, but I, I mean, what what exactly is he trying to say there? I mean, I don't think anybody knows. He probably doesn't even know. Six dreams. I mean, that's just like a very very strange or uh, uh, piece of music. And uh, and I can I could oh, I'm literally you're listening to tape. You can see like Daryl and Jan Rick scratching their heads and like okay, because <laughs> you know this guy saying I wanted to sound like a crow or. A, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> There's a little bit of that, but you know, so much of it's funny. A band, uh, especially the four of you, would start to play something, and it starts off with a chord here, or a guitar thing here, or something, and all of a sudden it just starts to grow and grow. And it also, it's it's almost an entity within itself. Yeah. It's almost you can't even control it at times. Yeah. It's it's an odd thing. It's like you don't necessarily sit down. It's not like it's not like. Beethoven or something where they have everything in their head and they take the pencil and they write it all out and it's that's the way it is and that's the way it perfect it just it, it had an entity with it itself coming out of you. But it, it, it evolves. Yeah, you're not trying to go from point A to point B. It just you're starting happened. on point A and you're going where do we end up? And yeah. You just do it until Sky would have maybe six streams is one of those yeah. odd we'll little strange thing or something, and he may have gotten that one from some LSD trip, mm. but he would present those lyrics and hum a little melody or something, and I'd mm. start, well, let me hear this little organ here, nee, 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 nee. you know, and pretty soon, you know, all of a sudden it started revolving and sounding Eastern or something, and it, it would just grow. I mean, speaking of which, the the very the, the the oddest, almost atonal sounding song on that <clears> record <throat> was the first ones recorded for the sessions at the end of '966, which is "Travel with Your Mind," right. and that's actually Daryl playing the um, the uh, guitar, the, uh, twelve string, you know, like I say, kind of atonal, but it's what? a it's not a sound you heard in pop. And in fact, if, if you listen to the the track, the way it was, there were several like bounce downs, you know, they cut it and they bounced the instruments down to another tape and added more stuff, blah, blah. But the, the actual original thing, the, the bass sound is this kind of weird sort of tobblerish type of rhythm going on. It's, it's, it's like, it's a bit like that early version of Tomorrow Never Knows by yeah. the first tape, take of Tomorrow Never Knows. And also you know? it's prefiguring Eight Miles High, which is a sort of, you know, a song like that, which is kind of made in the same spirit of adventure. And trying to make new noise in a kind of what's loosely a rock sort of vernacular. We did like to experiment with music, yeah. you know. And I think it was, I think the whole rock era of that time is kind of experimental in a way, you know. Yeah. Was the, we probably didn't we probably didn't know better what was wrong. Right. We didn't know what we couldn't do. Well, yeah. Yeah. Wait, nobody, I mean, yeah. yeah, nobody told us well you can't do that. Or yeah. we never said well you can't do that. We said. Well, let's do this and see what happens. Yeah, you know, it's let's fresh try snowfall, this, isn't it? It's yeah. you're kind of walking through fresh yeah. snowfall. And, uh, well, that was a wonderful thing about that. Daryl says that time it was everybody because you know there, there was still that pioneering 
aspect of everything. You know, the, you know, it wasn't like hard and fast by the '70s when everything had been done. Every yeah. permutation of chords and melody and this and that and da da da. It was, you know, there was that really kind of, you know, just uh, openness. Uh, and you know, and you know, in this, it's, you know, if, if the inspiration's there, it works great. If it's yeah. not there, then you know, it becomes, you know, like a. Yeah, you know, like I say, I mean, so there's some moments of pure inspiration on yeah. Future, but there's also some stuff that, you know... Well, and some of, the, some of these songs, too, didn't start anything like the way they ended up. I mean, the earlier versions completely went left, and what what you hear... See, when you have a recording of it, yeah. uh, especially from the old days when, you know, we didn't have things on YouTube and, yeah. you know, like we did... Uh, anyway, you, you, you start one way and, and you end up another, but... There, there's no record that anybody else hears. They only hear the final finished product. Of course. And so you begin, because you hear that so many times, you think, oh, well, that's just entirely what they intended. And frankly, if you'd come to any of our shows, every one of the songs might have been different every time we played it after that, too. And it was happening everywhere, wasn't it? That's why, you know, one great thing about these expanded reissues, and one thing I love about listening to the expanded reissues of Beatles albums where you hear the alternate takes is that a song is this kind of fluid thing and you know you really get to understand what Bob Dylan means about sort of not really wanting to stick too closely to record you know to, to doing what he did on say um, September the 12th uh, 1966 because that's just what he did on September the 12th 1966 so I guess there's probably an element is there do you try is, do you try and preserve some of that in the way that you guys play together now, or do you try and kind of maintain some kind of fidelity to to the me people's memories of these records? I'd say this the second. We're 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 trying. I think now there's a little bit of there's still ourselves, and there may be a little bit of the excitement of the moment that something might change slightly. Yeah. But for the most part, we're trying to give the audience a feel and performance of the real thing that happened in the 60s. The energy that happened. It's very much an energy thing. It's more yeah. important than Feeling the Feeling the energy. Yeah, yeah. 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 So yeah, I mean, it's not, I mean, the, 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 you know, the, 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 let's put it this way. The, the, our, our versions of Seeds classics or any of the Seeds material uh, might not be exactly the same, but they are authentic in terms of the way they're presented. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Better way to put it. And so, um, so what do you plan? I'm uh, in terms of a sort of touring gigging entity together. How, how do, do you are you doing a lot these days? No, <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't. I wouldn't say a lot. We're 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 playing. Uh, you know, we've been playing in California uh, quite a little bit. Uh, this is the first time over here to the UK, and uh, we're super glad to be here. By the way, glad to what a, sorry. But I think it's a, it's a, it's 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 rolling. It's evolving. It, it's it's, it's evolving, and, and it's not like we want to work every week or something. I mean, let's face it, we're not twenty anymore. So, you know, but we we hope to work more, and we hope to come well, to Europe a bit more, well, and back to the UK. And, and the other aspect is too, Sky Saxon, uh, uh, R.I.P. Mm -hmm. Bless his heart. He spent a lot of time in Europe in the 80s and 90s and 2000s. Yeah. So a lot of people saw Seed's music being performed by Sky, but of course he wasn't performing anything like he yeah. did on the records. So I think that you know, there's we we have to 
let people know about us and uh, will know about the band and that you know Daryl and Don, the surviving members, yeah. uh, are presenting the music in the spirit uh, that uh, of the band when it was at its peak. Yeah. And it's not a it's not a, the same as what Sky would do in you know, yeah, previous yeah, decades. Sky, Sky, of course, continued to evolve. Yeah. And to continue to, to move away from that music. And for a long time, he performed, and sometimes he used the name of the Seeds, and sometimes he didn't. Yeah. But where he ended up wasn't what we do. I mean, we're, we're, we are more true to that body of work from the yeah. 60s, but not not note for note, That not, not note for note that's on the records. Oh, of course. Uh, of course. We, yeah. we don't, we're not a cover band, you know, we are the seeds, and we are still ourselves and our heart is still coming out to you. Um, I'm sure. I mean, what about the... Um, I'm just before we come I want to get on to talking about the present and the film but before I do that I want to just talk a little bit about <coughs> the um, you know those sort of five that you know the period around uh, future where you know I, I read somewhere that sort of at this point it was kind of quite hard for Jan to stay in a band with Sky and um, it's we kind of come we're coming to that period where I guess it must have been Quite hard for all of you to be. I think it was becoming harder for everybody to be around Sky because, like I said, uh, around that year is when he started getting into drugs, and, and it got worse and worse as time went on, and 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 some of it was probably the uh, also like you you touched on to the ego and the money and the this and the that the popularity went to Sky's head more than anybody else, and he he just became harder to work with. And thought the whole band. He thought eventually, Sky Saxon was the seeds, yeah. and he didn't. He lost the reality yeah. of no. And I will say to this day, the seeds were. It took four people to yeah. make this group work. Sky was sure a large part of it, but so was I. So was Jan. So yeah. was Rick. And later, so was Don. It. It took that entity. That's the seeds, not <laughs> just Sky Saxon. Absolutely, and I think that's, that's a kind of interesting parallel as well with I remember sort of when I was 13 and I, and I discovered the doors and because mm -hmm. when you're 13 you kind of you're looking for a hero like Jim Morrison to sort of like you know all the kind of insecurities that you kind of have about the world and all you know you want to look up to someone like that and then actually as you get older you kind of realize the more you learn about music the more, how, how, how important, how much heavy lifting was done by the rest of the band. And I feel like there's a kind of parallel here also with the seeds, where if I listen now, I sort of, what I can hear, what kind of moves me, is kind of what's happening around Sky. And without it, you have this kind of, this personality that can kind of help inspire great music, mm -hmm. but it's not the music. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I do. I do. Which a, lot of, a lot of pieces falling together. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I would say in the case of the Doors, certainly for me, you know, I've been appreciated Morrison's, you know, poetics or whatever, and his intellectualism in his writing. But the, for me, Doors, the attraction was always the melodies and the music. Yeah, that's what I mean. And I say the Seas is the same thing. I mean, um, it's the same thing. Say the Ramones. I mean, we wouldn't listen to Joey Ramone singing by himself. We yeah. want to hear him with, you know, yeah. the, the, the. It's the same way. Yeah. yeah. I think what I'm saying. I, you know, as a teenager, I always felt a little bit guilty that I kind of really liked the songs that had a Robbie Krieger writing credit on them. Oh, yeah, yeah. And, uh, 
<laughs> we'll light my fires in mainland. Well, that's the one, yeah. Um, so I guess um, before we go into the present tense, I just wanted to ask a little bit about this incredible record, Raw and Alive, Merlin's Music Box, which uh, was re it seems it seems to be sort of re-establishing the sort of core brand in a way, and it seemed to be kind of reminding everyone of what it was that this perhaps the Seeds did best of all. It sort of it had that effect even at the time, didn't it? It seemed to sort of remind people that this is really what a great live band the Seeds are. I'm not sure how to approach that. Well, I, all I can say is the reason why it happened was that um, you know you had Future, which you know didn't do as well as was intended. Yeah. Know, certainly wasn't you know wasn't at least at the time perceived as a uh, any kind of a masterpiece as Sky wanted. Yeah. And then you had this wonderful little aberration, which is a record that the band had actually recorded in late 1966, a full program of blues, yeah. full spoon of CD blues, which came out, but it, for whatever reason it was presented by the record label as under a pseudonym, you know, yeah. uh, Sky Saxon's Blues Band. Well, the reason for that was, too, is, is they didn't think, it, you know, it would sell at all because it was, it was a true, true blues album. I yeah. mean, we did that. I'm glad we're touching on that a little bit. Worked with Muddy Waters on that album, yeah. and it was a great experience. It was a wonderful recording. Muddy loved you, didn't he? He did, yeah. And he was great to work with. He wrote one of the songs on there. He played harmonica on one of the songs, and he was just a down-to-earth, wonderful person. And uh, it was a great experience to do that. It was. Uh, How did you guys hook up? Sky met him somehow. At, uh, I think he met him at the Troubadour Club or something. Uh, I think Arthur Lee think. was uh, introduced. Yeah. And he, he compared you to the. He said. I think he said that you were. America's what, the Rolling Stones were. Yeah. America's, America's Rolling, Rolling, Rolling Stones. Rolling Stones. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. That was his Marty Waters quote. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good day, isn't it, when you have yeah. someone like that? So you exactly. Yeah. Anyway, so the, just to go back to this, so we had this wonderful mm -hmm. blues record, but of course it didn't really mean much in the in the in the in the in the, in the seed sort of progression because it wasn't really identified as a seeds album. Um, yeah. And then you know, I think there was a decision made. You know, the single, the end of 1966, uh, 67, pardon me, was "The Wind Blows Your Hair," a wonderful song, which the yeah. band recorded several times, but that didn't go anywhere. So I think, and, and then they jettisoned Lord Tim, you know, because he was costing him a lot of money, basically. Gary Ball, <laughs> costing Crescendo, you know, he's sending Crescendo's bills for publicity and all this other kind of stuff. Yeah. So uh, I was like, well, what do we do? And the band got involved with uh, uh, Nick Grillo, who's a, a booking agent of the Beach Boys and whatever. And, you know, and the first thing said, well, you know, you guys need to cut a live album and you show people. Yeah, you know, I was going to say, it had a lot to do with the record company on that one. Well, I think, I think the goal was because future was a true studio album. I think that the goal was to try to capture that thing that happens in a live performance that you can't put on tape, right? Yeah, yeah. That's why you go to see live music. If you just wanted to hear the notes, they're nice and clear on a record, then you can sit at home. Yeah. But but you, the, the energy that you experience with all the people together, it takes the band and it takes the audience, it takes everything to happen together. Sure, yeah. And I think at, at that time, I think a lot of bands were trying to Trying to, to figure out how do we how do we capture that thing that we've never been able to put on tape, and and so I think there were a lot of live albums at the time, and I think that was kind of the goal was to get back because I think the future album kind of smoothed over the real band, the live band, yeah, the seeds, right. and 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 kind of became a production, which you know when there's only four guys, you, you don't get a production like that, you get yeah. energy, 
and to, and to try to put that back out to people to, to go, no, they haven't fallen asleep. I mean, <laughs> you know, that's not what happens at a show. But if you only got to the band via records, right. Some people might have thought that, and so I think that was that was kind of the goal was to. to but get it was uh, definitely you know it was to showcase the the best part of the band you know which was their in person you know excitement. But I will just add that you know both the first album and Weber Sound are pretty much cut live. You know I mean in terms of the the yes, there's some overdubs particularly on um, on uh, Weber Sound, but they were essentially tracked live. You know Sky sang live on every take, yeah. and it, you know certainly on the first album virtually all of the uh, his vocals, uh, the the live the live vocal cut with the band. So there was, you know, there's even that wonderful quote from Jimmy Madden on uh, used off um, on one of the, the reissues. Uh, it was a sky don't dance in front of the microphone. You know, you know, stay on it. So I think you know Gene Norman certainly probably more than anyone else because he put out a lot of live albums over the Gene GMP Crescendo catalog over the years. So, you know, boys, you know, we need to get back to basics. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, but of course, the logistics of recording a live show. I don't know why they made this decision, but they decided to cut it, do something live at Western Studios with a, their fan club in attendance, and they did that. And for some reason, the atmosphere was just wasn't quite there, wasn't quite there. So they went back and did another session live, and you know, Sky using a handheld mic, as you can kind of tell, because yes. he's all over the place, uh, and cut the things for what eventually was used on Raw and Alive, uh, which then you know subsequently got smothered with this live Beach Boys, was it? Or a Beach Boys show, I think. The library, you know, there's like a, screaming fans from a Beach Boys show, and that became the Roar on a Life thing. And I know, I mean, I first heard that album in the '80s. I, I could, you know, you know, I, I loved the music I heard, and I really loved some of the songs that are exclusive to that record, like Mumble and Bumble yeah, and yeah. Uh, Gypsy, you know, uh, not yeah, Gypsy plays the drums and those things. Forest outside your door, um, but you know, it would drive me crazy. This all the way through it. So I just wanted to, I want to hear the band rocking. So it was so wonderful to come across the tape in the GMP Crescendo archive of the album without the sound effects on top. I mean, that must be wonderful to just, that's like, the, I, that's the kind of thing I have dreams about. To just find some, a kind of something by one of my favorite bands that I didn't even know existed for sure in an archive. That must be why you do it, really. Well, of course it is. I mean, that's the payoff, you know. Uh, uh, oh, and the payoff is getting to be friends with these, you know, our heroes and yeah. and like, you know, groupie like me playing with them, uh, too. But uh, uh, um, the but it, well, I'll be honest with you, Peter. I mean, it's really, you know, it's a, it, it, you know that aspect of things is, you know, if you're a real fan, it's 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 one must. It really is like you know, you're panning for gold, and you come across this thing that you you either. Suspected it existed and hoped existed, and you actually find it, or something you had no idea about, and you come across it. I mean, I, I, just a quick other example. I've been working with Shell Tommy, the you know yeah. producer, recently, and you know, I, one day I asked him, "Do you have any? You know, hey, you got any acetates around any Shell?" And he said, "Oh, I don't know." And I went and looked through his cupboard. I pull out a blank acetate. It says David Jones on it. It's five unreleased David Bowie songs from 1965. Yeah. Alec has, has quite a collection of top secret things that we can't talk about <laughs> but I, even for us I mean just to be able to hear some of the things yeah. in Alex's private collection uh, we won't say how we but, but it really it truly is a, the archaeology and that part of the forensics mm. of like going into a, especially if it's a group like the Seas where you know because of the way they recorded this yeah. sort of you know they you know they, they were doing they were experimenting but they recorded live and they had this energy it's always exciting to throw off a tape on the machine and say, what are we going to hear today? You know? When did you first meet these guys, Alec? Uh, let's see. Well, I actually first, Daryl's not going to remember this, but I actually, I was, <laughs> this is very fortunate. In 1989, 
the four original seeds, Sky, Daryl, uh, Rick Andrews, Jeremy, and Jan Savage, uh, they did a very short little tour, reunion tour in California. It's just after I moved to California. So I caught them uh, playing at the Luther Burbank Art Center in, uh, um, up in Santa Rosa. Uh, and I went up and shook Daryl's hand. He said, oh, you're from England? Oh, yeah, I really like England. You don't remember. I remember, yeah. I, I wouldn't remember that, honestly, that that was Alec at that <laughs> time. But I remember the show. Yeah. Okay. But, uh, and then uh, so anyway, obviously, uh, uh, you know, then I you know started you know working you know the reissues for Ace and you know that sort of started snowball eventually. And it came to a point in about two thousand five, two thousand six, where you know I thought you know you know it's the seeds of it's you know I've, I've you know I've done Music Machine, I've done Standell, I've done Chocolate Washband, you know, <coughs> which what which other garage rock titan can I? Who I worship, you know, and the season, you know, I got in touch with Neil Norman, uh, who is the son of Gene Norman, the, you know, the founder of the label, and now obviously the president since Gene has moved on. And yeah, you know, Neil was at first as like, well, you know, we have our seed stuff out, and yeah, we're happy with it, blah blah. I said, but you know, Neil, can I go through the tapes and see what you have? So, oh, okay, let me think about it. Then it just so happened one day, you know, he we pulled out a bunch of session tapes, and you know, I. I always travel with a tape machine in the back of the car, and so I set it up in his living room so he couldn't say no, and put it on. And you know, the, one of the first things we came across was a 15-minute full-length unedited Evil Hoodoo. You know, this is like kraut rock. You know, it's just like relentless pummeling for 15 minutes. And he goes, "Wow, you found that!" So after that, it's like, fine, you, whatever you want. So what I what I want to know is, obviously, as a fan, this is like a major once you know a moment that you never forget about from your perspective as a as a, as a musician can you is it a bit oh what that old thing what does he see in that or, or is it do you do, do you know what i mean because sometimes with musicians you can't because you were there you can't necessarily tell you do you can't predict what it is that a super fan like alec will come along and say no trust me this is important yeah, well, uh, I, I, I don't know, I find a lot of things like that. Just, really? Yeah. <laughs> like this whole conversation like <laughs> <laughs> No, but, but uh, anyway, yeah, it's just, it, I don't know, you just you look at it different, you know? Well, I think, you know, the, I mean, of course, the, what I was going to say was that working on the catalogue for Ace Bigby uh, and Dutz on doing reissues, and that dovetail with Neil's desire to do a film about the seats. And um, and that's when I reconnected with Daryl, met Jan for the first time, uh, and then a little bit later we ran into Don, thankfully at the the, the tribute concert uh, that was held for Sky in Los Angeles, right after he passed away in 2009. Uh, and so, basically, snowballed. Uh, you know, Scott here, the, who's filming us right now, is uh, was the cameraman, and we you know just basically spent you know the best part of like, was it four years I think five years talking to as many people we could. Yeah. Uh, building up, and in the process, I got to know uh, Daryl and, and, and Jan and, and Don and everybody else. And it's yeah, you know, it's wonderful to be, I mean, you know, to spend time with people whose name you've looked at on album covers for years and whose music you listen to. What, what's this guy really like? You know, is he a great guy or is he a you know, is he a, is he gonna? <laughs> the, the I haven't made my mind up about Daryl. <laughs> it's the question we all ask ourselves about the names on credits of records. Um, so the film, so there is this, this, this feature-length documentary which tells the story of the seat. And it's a long time in the, it, it was a long time in the making, wasn't it? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was, uh, we started in like 2008, I think, and it made its, 
premiere, premiere, I should say, uh, in uh, 2014. And now, uh, uh, on Saturday, it's coming Saturday, the 20th, is going to make its premiere uh, in Europe uh, at the Beat Bespoke Festival. Um, the reason people are always going to ask, why isn't it on DVD? Why isn't it being streamed? Or blah, blah. Well, the truth is, well, Neil Norman uh, and myself, whenever I can make it, and Daryl, too, <coughs> and Don, uh, you know, he, he just, you know, he's an old school record guy uh, who directed this movie and he loves going out and meeting the people so he does to take it around to different yeah, cities in yeah, the United States uh, get up and talk about you know not just the seeds but Crescendo and his dad and a lot of other yeah. things and I think he, he's been having a real kick doing that for the past five years now I think we're probably getting into a mode where it will probably come out yeah. be distributed in a wider form um, you know you know sooner or later I mean the, the difference is is that of course you know Neil uh, as the owner of Crescendo, owns the masters and he owns the publishing. So, you know, he's, he, unlike a lot of documentaries that uh, you know rely on you know having to get that stuff from another party, yeah. you know, and therefore they're sort of behooven to them. So they yeah, yeah. like try to rush it out to maximize it because they've got to pay a bunch of money to get these other things in. Neil can take a sweet time, you know, uh, uh, with it. You know, it's a uh, so that's. It's. I think it's a. If you if you like rock and roll, if you're interested in rock and roll stories, I mean, you know, Sky is one of the great characters. But it's not just about Sky. It's a, it's a warm and affectionate about Sky, and you really don't. You know, we don't. Nobody's like looking vicariously at like his sort yeah. of you know, uh, you know the, how his how his life went. But it's just as much about Daryl and Jan and Rick and you know and then of course Don and the other guys, uh, you know, and their participation in this wonderful rock and roll fable. Is it surreal to see to go to sit in a cinema and see a see a film a story like this about a, a band that you're actually in? Yeah, I'd, I'd say it is. Yeah, it was, it, it, yeah, yeah it's, it, it's certainly unplanned. I mean, nobody yeah. would have expected. No, exactly. You know, you see yourself so, on the big yeah. screen. It's yeah. great. It's almost like a, a little short story. Uh, Pushing too hard was used in um, Air America with uh, Mel uh, Mel Gibson. And I live in a small town area, and I went to the movie theater one night, and I went to the late showing, and I was the only person in the theater. And I sat right in the middle. I liked airplanes, and I liked Mel Gibson and whatever else. It's, you know, whatever. I'm sitting in the middle of the theater. I had no clue whatsoever. Movie starts, and about two minutes into the movie, here the guy comes flying in over Los Angeles in a helicopter, and he's got the radio on, and he's talking about the traffic or something. And here's pushing too hard, pushing on me. And I went, what? <laughs> and the guy singing in the, who's the other uh, actor in that movie? Uh, Oh, I can't think oh, of it. Robert, Robert, Robert Downey Jr. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's singing along with Pushing Too Hard as he's flying his helicopter or whatever, you know. And I was just blown away, you know. So, and then the same thing. The movie premiered in Hollywood at the uh, Egyptian, Egyptian, Egyptian Theater. Theater. Huge, big deal. And all the fans showed up, young and old and everybody else. And it was very exciting. And yeah, to see yourself on the big screen, it's, it's quite, it was quite an honor. These moments that you just can't—how could you have foreseen it as a I young man? Yeah. You didn't. Yeah. You couldn't. Yeah, of course, you, you never knew that it was even going to last at all. You know. What was the first show you? When do you actually formally enter the story as a seed, Don? Uh, just about the middle of 1968, I think. Um, I got a phone call from Jan, and uh, he said we're looking for a new drummer. Uh, I had been in a bunch of almost signed bands in Hollywood, 
And, uh, and I went up to Malibu to Sky's house. And uh, the funny thing was, when I got there, I unloaded my drums and, uh, and they told me, oh, we already found a drummer, so you don't need to play. And I went, oh, because the Seats were, you know, the biggest band in, the biggest band in Hollywood. And, you know, I, I've listened to the Seats for years and, and loved the Seats. And, and fortunately, very fortunately for me, um, our, our, the band's road manager, Richard, said, well, he came all the way out here, at least let him play. And I thought, well, if nothing else, I'll get to play three or four songs with the Seeds, right? And so we set up and we played, and Sky and Daryl and Jan went in the house. They came back out 15 minutes later and said, well, we told this other guy we didn't want him and we're, we would like you to play with the band. <laughs> so I went from nothing to being in, you know, the biggest band, you know, the huge fairy tale. Um, and you, so, and, and getting to know Sky a bit like, you know, the point at which you would have got to know Sky, he was a star and he would have been subject to the kind of effects, the vicissitudes of fame. Um, was he a pretty easy guy, as far as you're concerned, was he a pretty easy guy to deal yeah, with? Yeah, he was easy along, and I hung with Sky a lot. Yeah. You know, at, at that point, uh, uh, Jan and Daryl were married. They had wives to go home to, but I was, I was too young. I was still in high school at the time. I don't think they knew how young I actually was. And uh, <laughs> so, so, yeah, I hung with Sky a lot in, in Malibu. And, uh, you know, we had good times. I, you know, Sky, Sky was, a, was a very gentle, sweet person. Yeah. But he would just kind of get out there sometimes. It was reality a little bit that, that made it difficult. And then, he, you know, he did get a little more into drugs. Although my experience with him, even through, the, I don't know, the... 1969 issue. I, I never saw some of the problems that other people saw. I didn't see them as problems. Yeah. You know. You just took uh, him as you found him. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty much. And with all the sort of in his post seeds life, with all the kind of vagaries of well, you know the the religious conversions and all of that stuff. Did you stay in touch throughout all of that, or did he? No. No. So, so I'll tell you a very funny story. Yeah. <clears throat> When, when I out the band. Sky, Sky continued on, and somewhere in the mid-70s, Sky picked up a band to, he called them the Seeds, but to perform with them, uh, a Hollywood band called Red Cross. You oh, know yeah, that? yeah, I know Red Cross. Okay, so he picked up Red Cross, to play, and they played some shows or some period of time, something. Anyway, yeah, it was in the 80s. Is it the 80s? 80s okay, yeah, yeah. well, <laughs> I can't remember what I had for breakfast, so, okay, well, 80s is good. Um, Anyway, my daughter was on the internet to something, somebody, and somebody said, well, I, I was the drummer with Sky. And she wrote him back and she said, well, my dad was the drummer with Sky. And uh, so they got together and met. Eventually, he married my daughter. Wow. So my daughter's father and husband both played with Sky. In the Amazing, wow. <laughs> this is just crazy. And that is the very last time <clears throat> that I heard from Sky at all was an email actually to my daughter when, when he wrote. So Sky found out about this somehow yeah. because, you know, back in those days, it's not like now with social media and internet and all that. Yeah. I mean, I lost track of these guys. I didn't see them until the film premiere when we actually oh, wow. got, well, I take that back. Yeah. I, they were at the, they were at the at Sky's memorial, but, but we really hadn't got together and didn't know how to connect with each other yeah. till uh, actually the movie premiere, yeah. when, when the movie for, you know, first showed. And we just got so many people that said, well, 
why don't you do this again? And we didn't know there was that much interest, frankly. Really? Um, wow. That I mean, you know, there's always some interest, but like, will you come and see a show? Well, yeah. And and the amazing th the amazing thing to us is, is the shows is is the younger people. <clears throat> well, I was going to say, what the, is the main? I can see them in the front row, and they know all the words to all the songs. I don't know all the words to all the songs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, what's in, what's interesting uh, to observe, you know, is obviously you and I, P, we're the same age, so you know we know have known the history and we know and sky has been as i mentioned you know the sort of the the eccentric focal point for a lot of people's interest in seas partly because of his you know he makes colorful copy you know, yeah. you know he's a, yeah. but you know he died in 2009 <clears throat> and you know he sort of you know he sort of scorched the earth you know in not such a great way with some of his later musical efforts uh, like i say he's a wonderful man as don says total peaceful soul and I always be will have a utmost respect for him, but you know, musically he wasn't that interesting later years. It was really like you know, uh, hit or miss to put it mildly. But of course, there's been he died ten years ago, and there's been a whole generation of, of kids that have learned Seeds music, not you know, with him not being around and not really knowing Sky is eccentric. Yeah. They just know Seeds music. And they were near where they want to hear those songs. Right, and so they they come along, they look at it, and they don't look at it from the point of view, you know, that uh, that Sky Saxon isn't there anymore. They're seeing the Seeds and they're hearing the music. It's not a tribute band. It's not like you know, you know, the San Francisco Seeds tribute or something like that. It's uh, it's the it's who the the Seeds the, the guys that own the name, you know, ethically if nothing else, yeah. uh, presenting the music that they created. Uh, you know, for a, a newer generation, it's really not. Uh, and you know, if I can be the Viagra for these guys, then you know, all the better. You know. Thank you so much. <laughs> Let's say it's the real deal. Well, it's and it carries on. It carries on. Like all great music, it carries on. It assumes new shapes with the passing of time. It stays alive, and long may it do so. And these these uh, these expanded releases are a joy. I've been never been off my. Uh, uh, my CD player since I received them, so thank you very much. Um, mm. I'm going to say goodbye and thank you for your time and patience. Um, Don Boomer, Alec Palau, Daryl Hooper. Thank you. <laughs> the thank you. Thank good you to be much. good to be in England. For more excellent music, you can scoot over to the Ace Records website, www.acerecords.co.uk. All the wonderful music you can possibly need.